their motivation. So, in our lives, when we want to do anything or learn anything, we basically depend on others to learn it. And specifically, we depend on teachers and mentors. And so, in the case of our spiritual practice also, we depend on teachers and mentors. And our fundamental teacher is the Buddha. And then we also have human beings who teach us and who lead us on the path. So it's a very special relationship we have unlike any other relationships in our lives. And so it's important to approach that with the correct motivation. And so here, as in everything we do in the Dharma, the best motivation is one of love, compassion and altruism for all living beings, wanting to improve our own abilities and knowledge and skill so that we can be of the greatest benefit to other living beings. And so with this motivation, let's approach the whole path, and especially tonight, the relationship with our spiritual mentor. about it, our relationship with uh, our spiritual mentors, and it's quite fine to have more than one spiritual mentor. It's a very unusual kind of relationship. It's not like the relationship we have with our ordinary school teachers, or with our parents, or with our friends, or with a person who teaches us how to fix the car engine, or change the oil, or, you know, anything else. It's a very unique kind of relationship. And so since our spiritual practice is something of critical importance in our life, and in our lives, plural, um, you know, having a, a good, uh, relationship with our spiritual mentors is, is really important so that we benefit from the relationship. Okay, so um, we can't kind of go in just with like, oh yeah, hi, how are you? Nice to know you. I have time to talk to you today and I feel like being your friend today, but tomorrow I really... You know, I want to do something else, and I'm not so interested tomorrow, and 
you know, you know what I mean? Having said that, uh, I must confess that the first conversation I had with my teacher was about dolphins. This was the level of my mind. Um, because I was driving somebody else who was Rinpoche's student to the airport to meet him. And so I went in to meet him and greet him as well. I uh, had no idea who this person was. Uh, but he had, was coming back from Florida where he had seen some dolphins. So we had a nice conversation about dolphins. You know, I had no clue who this person was and what he had to offer. Okay, uh, I soon, soon learned more. <laughs> Thank goodness. Okay. Uh, yeah, but it, it's uh, quite an unusual relationship because this is a person who's guiding us on the spiritual path. And that's something very important in our life. And so we have to choose somebody who's reliable and somebody who's going to be a good role model for us. Yeah. Um, because if we don't have a, you know, we're going to become like the people we learn from. And so we want to seek out somebody who is a good role model for the kind of person we want to become like. And we also have to seek somebody who uh, really knows the Dharma well, because if they don't, then we're going to learn the wrong stuff and practice the wrong path and get nowhere. Okay? And so that's why last week we, we talked quite a bit about the qualities to look for in a spiritual mentor so that we could really look for those before we formed the relationship. So everybody who has the title teacher or guru or lama or whatever doesn't have to be our teacher and is not necessarily qualified, especially in the West where you have a spiritual supermarket. So uh, it's really up to us as the students to always examine the qualities of the teacher and not just rush into relationships. We certainly, if we're wise, we don't marry the, some, the first person we meet, and we also don't marry somebody the first time we meet them. Yeah. So who we choose as our spiritual mentors is actually much more important than who we marry. Yeah, because who we marry is just something this life, but you know, who we choose as our spiritual mentors is going to influence many lives and you know, we'll have a Dharma connection with them in a spiritual life and in future lives. Okay? So the time to to really look for somebody's fault, it falls is before we take them as our teacher, to you know, to really screen them and so on. Not like we're a consumer, you know, with our little checklist, and I'm going to screen you to see if you satisfy my criteria. Uh, not like that, but you know, to to really. Uh, See if this is somebody that we have confidence in, who knows the Dharma well, who's a good example, who has compassion 
family's not going to throw up their hands when we're obnoxious and say, I can't take you anymore, get out of here. Um, which sometimes it's, <laughs> I think it's tempting to do because students don't always act so wonderfully sometimes. Okay. Then, having formed the relationship with a spiritual mentor, and the question comes, how do we form that relationship? One way is if we take refuge of the five lay precepts with them, if we take bodhisattva precepts with them, if we take tantric initiation uh, with them, then they become one of our teachers. Uh, another way is you just are there long enough and you know they you realize that they're your teacher and they realize that that, that, that you've you know made that relationship. I know for me, uh, I mean I knew absolutely less than nothing when I came across Buddhism. Um, but like I keep telling people, I just knew that what these people, said help me when I practiced it and it made sense when I checked it. So I kept going back and I think just by the, the force of me going back, you know, then we kind of figured out that I was, you know, their disciple. I did take refuge in precepts at one point so that kind of formalized it. But, um, you know, it, it just became obvious after time. Okay, so then once we've taken somebody as one of our teachers, then to, in order to benefit from our relationship with them, we have to keep a positive state of mind. Okay? So that means that we have to really control our judgmental, critical mind. It does not mean we have to whitewash things. Yeah. So if somebody's behaving poorly, we don't need to say, well, that's just the Buddha's, you know, wisdom that is beyond our understanding when they're, you know, doing who knows what that may be actually quite unethical or harmful to sentient beings. So it doesn't involve whitewashing things, yeah. Um, but most of our gripes about our spiritual teachers don't come from their having poor ethical conduct. Sometimes it does. That's when you have the scandals in the different Buddhist centers. And that's a different situation where you have to speak up. Okay? But normally, you know, in our relationships with our teachers, uh, you know, when we get angry or upset, it's not because they're behaving poorly. It's because they're pushing our buttons. But we don't describe it to ourselves as they are pushing our buttons. We describe it to ourselves as they are ignoring me, they don't appreciate me, they don't like me, um, you know, they don't look at me, uh, it's all they, 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 you know. They're not meeting my needs, they, you know, all this stuff, okay? So, that stuff has nothing to do with ethical conduct. Yeah? My teacher doesn't look at me when I'm waving my hand like this to ask a question. Is that a breach of ethical conduct? No. Do we ever ask ourselves, is it appropriate to go like this? 
No. <laughs> we just expect we can act anyway, and they're going to accept it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's sometimes helpful to, to check our own behavior in this. But most of the time, our gripes are because, you know, they're pointing out something to us that we don't like people noticing and pointing out to us. Yeah. Or uh, they ask us to do something that we don't want to do. We absolutely do not want to do. Yeah. And so our mind is like flaring up. But, you know, what they're asking us to do, I mean, normally has nothing to do with ethical conduct. Yeah, it just has to do with our preferences, what's convenient and inconvenient for us. Yeah, what we like and don't like, our shoulds and shouldn'ts, our rules of the universe. So it's very helpful when these things come up in relationships with our teachers because very often what annoys us or angers us is something that is a habit pattern in our life. Certain situations we don't like and when that same emotional habit pattern comes up in regard to our spiritual teacher, it make it it uh, has a different meaning, okay? Because if we formed a close relationship with a teacher, and we have cultivated faith and confidence in them, and we understand the benefits of having a good relationship and the disadvantages of having a bad relationship with them, then we realize that, uh-oh, I'm angry, I'm peeved, if I act the same old way I always act in this situation, what's the result going to be? The same old result. Is that the kind of relationship that I want to create with my spiritual mentor? is the same old kind of relationships with the same old results because I'm acting out my same old patterns. Okay? So if we're smart, we realize the answer to that question is, no, I don't want to do that. And so then that makes us, you know, kind of stop and say, okay, if I don't want to act in my same old ways, then what do I need to do? How can I change what I'm thinking? How can I respond in a different way? So it forces us to practice. Yeah, because it's not, because we realize that just blaming our teacher is not going to bring a good result for ourselves. Okay? Are you getting what I'm saying? You know, usually what we do is blame the other person, isn't it? Yeah, it's their fault. But, you know, and so our, that's our tendency. So our teacher is, isn't doing what we want them to do, then we blame them. Yeah, 
But then, where does that get us? Our mind's unhappy. We back away from a spiritual relationship with somebody who can help us on the path to awakening. What kind of karma is that? Do we really want that kind of karma? Yeah. And so if we don't, then how can we deal with our own habitual negative mind in order to work through this situation in a positive way that can maintain the relationship so that I will benefit in my practice? Are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, I'll give you one example that just kind of popped into my mind. Uh, as, as many of you know, I was in Italy with Sam and company for nearly two years. Okay. Uh, when I finally got permission to leave and I went back to India, I was so happy to be in India. It was wonderful. And then I got a message from Lama Yeshi who said, I want you to go back to Italy. Not to the same center, but to another center that was actually just a newly forming center. So there wasn't even a teacher there that I could follow. I would again be on my own and, you know, Who knows what was going to go on. So I did not want to go back to Italy. You know, that was not my choice of what to do. I wanted to stay in India because it was so nice in India. And be near my teachers and be able to practice and not have to deal with these macho Italian men. Yeah who made me create so much negative karma, even though I'm so sweet. Okay. So, um, but you know, when your teacher tells you to do something, then, you know, you don't just say, I don't want to do it. And especially because he wasn't there, he just sent a message. I couldn't, like, turn around and go, I don't want to do that, Mama. No way am I going back. You know, I mean, you don't talk to your spiritual mentor that way. So um, I had to really sit and work with my mind to get my mind to the point where, you know, if Lama thinks that it's worthwhile for my practice and for the benefit of sentient beings to go back to Italy, I will do that. And he must think that if he asks me to go. You know, so I had to really work with my mind because that wasn't what I wanted to do. Okay. As it actually turned out, you know, so, you know, I told him I would go. And then I was waiting for them to send the the ticket. And they didn't send the ticket. And they didn't send the ticket. And I didn't know what to do because Lama had told me to go there. So I went to see Kyabche Ling Rinpoche and told him the situation. And he said, well, if they don't send a ticket, you obviously can't go. So I wound up not going. Yeah, But I had to 
gotten my mind to that place where I was willing to do that. Now, of course, if Lama had told me to, you know, go kill somebody or go sleep with somebody or go rob a bank, you know, I would have said, no, you're, you know, completely within your, um, you know, having a proper relationship with your teacher to say no if your teacher's asking you to do something unethical or something harmful, then it's fine. You just politely say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. But clearly, you know, that wasn't the situation there. It felt like he was asking me to go to prison, but, you know, it was just because of the state of my mind, that's all. Okay? So I've had several of the other of those kind of experiences, and they're always very interesting for working with your mind, you know, because you're really face-to-face with your own habits, you know, what you usually like to do and respond, and you just know if you do that same old thing here, you know, you're going to be the one who loses out. So it acts in a very good way to help us train our mind and correct those habits. And then when we encounter the similar kind of situations with ordinary sentient beings, having been able to restrain our mind and reorient it to a different perspective when it happened with our teacher, then we can do the same when in relationship to ordinary sentient beings. Okay? So it helps us tremendously to, you know, start correcting some very um, ingrained behaviors. Okay? Make some sense? Yeah. Not pleasant, but extremely beneficial. Okay? Okay. So let's go back to the text here. I wasn't going to talk about that right away, but it somehow came out, didn't it? Okay, so um, last week, you know, we were talking about how to rely on a spiritual teacher, so there's how to rely upon them in thought and how to rely upon them in action. And under how to rely upon them in thought, there's how to cultivate faith, and then how to cultivate respect. Although in terms of respect, I think it's, I feel it's much more gratitude than respect. And I'll explain that in a minute. Okay? So, but in order to, to, uh, to cultivate faith, then we practice looking at their good qualities, you know, and, and really, um, yeah, appreciating their, their good qualities and, and uh, having faith in them and their ability to guide us because we can see through their behavior and how they handle situations, um, you know, that we will become like them. Or we look at their other disciples and we will see that, you know, if we follow them, we will become like those disciples. Okay, so then the second one was um, how to rely, uh, under how to rely upon them in our thought, is um, having recalled their kindness, developing, here it has veneration, 
So veneration, respect is how it's usually translated. I think it's gratitude. At least that's the feeling that comes from me. And here what you do is you recall the kindness of your teachers. Yeah? And, and so you, you know, one way is to think, I didn't have the fortune to be born at the time of the Buddha. And here's this person who's teaching me just as the Buddha would teach me if the Buddha were here. And, you know, and so to really see their kindness in teaching us the Dharma, see their kindness in guiding us, yeah, and seeing how we can benefit from, from the relationship. And, you know, it, what this meditation does is it, is it prevents us from taking our teacher for granted and it prevents us from thinking that they're our servant, you know? Because uh, we, you know, they're kind in teaching us, they're kind in including us in their circle of disciples, especially, you know, if you're a monastic and your teacher is helping to provide for your food and lodging and so on, in addition to teaching you, yeah, then, you know, to have some feeling of their kindness and some gratitude towards that, you know. And that's important, and that creates a very uh, wonderful kind of warm feeling in our own heart, okay? So here in the text, it says here to recall their kindness, Recite with a melody as taught in the Ten Dharma and the Array of Stalks Sutra and contemplate them. This is the way to rely upon the spiritual masters in thought. Okay, so I have the verses here that they're referring to. And let, let's look at them, okay? Um, okay, so the Sutra of the Ten Dharmas. Okay, so... Um, I'll lose, use the plural, they, meaning spiritual, our spiritual mentors, instead of he or she or whatever you want to do. Okay? So, they look for me who has roamed in cyclic existence for a long time. Now, I don't know about you, when I look at my life before I met my teachers, I was roaming in cyclic existence for a long time. I had a spiritual yearning, no idea of where to go and what to do, you know? No one was there to show me any kind of way. Everything, every other path I checked out just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. So when I think of that, wow, yeah, I was roaming in cyclic existence for a long time, and here somebody threw me the, you know, the, the lifeline, okay? They awaken me from a long time of obscuration and torpor due to ignorance. Well, that's for sure, you know? Again, if I look at my life, I went through most of my life completely ignorant. I didn't know anything about anything, you know? My ethical conduct was, you know... <coughs> Or, uh, 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 might be more accurate. 
Yeah. So lots of ignorance. I thought my anger was good. I thought attachment was the way to happiness. I thought being selfish was the way to, you know, to get what I wanted. Okay. So they awakened me from a long time of obscuration and torpor due to ignorance. They pull me out as I sink in the ocean of existence. Again, when I look at my life, if I hadn't met my teachers, I would have made a mess. You know, not only in my own life, but of several other people's lives. Yeah, and it's real clear to me when I look at my life, you know, at that time, right before I met the Dharma, the direction I was going in was I would have made a big mess. Okay, so they pull me out as I sink in the ocean of cyclic existence. They show good paths to me, to me who has entered bad ones. So I'm in the middle of going down the wrong way. They show me the right way. They free me who has been bound in the prison of existence. So they lead us on the path, you know. And until now, we've just been bound in samsara, getting born sick, old die, born sick, old die, born sick, old die, again and again and again. So this is the person who's like reached out and, you know, can, can stop all of that. Okay. They are a doctor to me who has been tormented by illness. Yeah, so I've been tormented by the illness of the afflictions, and they're the doctor who diagnoses and cures me. I should generate the notion of them as rain clouds, pacifying me who has been ablaze with the fire of attachment and the like. So I think especially now, when we're all feeling edgy because of the fires all around us, you know? Strange that we feel edgy about physical fires, but not the fire of attachment, not the fire of anger and confusion. We feel coldly relaxed with those fires burning all around. It's only the physical one that, that we get afraid of, you know? I mean, we're, we're really kind of upside down, aren't we? Okay, so, you know, when we contemplate, you know, this is the role this person has played in our life. That's, you know, at the beginning when I said it's a role unlike any other role, that's, that's what it means. And to see that, you know, their kindness in, in doing that. And I know my specific situation, I used to think, you know, because I met the Dharma quite early on, um, you know, when everybody was kind of poor, not kind of poor, very poor. Um, the fact that my teachers even came to the West and taught us Westerners, instead of living in their own communities with their friends, with people in their own culture, people who understood them, who spoke the same, the same language. You know, that they were willing to, to leave that kind of comfort and, and teach us, you know, crazy Westerners who, like I told you, you know, kind of stumbled up the hill of Copan. Yeah. And, you know, then proceeded to complain and criticize. And yet, you know, they didn't give up on us. It was really kind of amazing when you think 
because they didn't really have much to gain in those days from teaching us. Yeah. Um, okay, then the Array of Stalks Sutra. This is the Gandavyuha Sutra, the um, one that the King of Prayers comes from. Okay, so the Gandavyuha Sutra is one of the chapters in the Avatamsaka, the Flower Ornament Sutra, which is a really, really thick sutra. Okay, so this passage says, These are my spiritual friends, expounders of Dharma, exhaustively teaching the qualities of all dharmas, thoroughly teaching the conduct of bodhisattvas. With these thoughts in mind, I have come here. So this, this verse is, in one way, pointing out what our teachers are doing. You know, they're spiritual friends, expounder of the Dharma, teaching us the qualities of all phenomena, teaching us the bodhisattva path. So it's pointing out the, the kindness of our teachers to us. But the last line, with these thoughts in mind, I have come here. So with these thoughts of these are the kind of people who are going to benefit me, who are worthy of respect and veneration and gratitude. Yeah. With that in mind, I am coming here. So I'm not coming here to get all the love from mom and dad that I never had. I'm not coming here to hang around a holy person so I can feel good about myself and brag to my friends. I'm not coming here so that I can um, be the favorite disciple of the, the teacher. Okay, I'm not coming here in order to convince my teacher to do things my way because I know what's best. Yeah. No, I'm coming here with the, these kind of thoughts that lead me to have respect and veneration and gratitude. Okay, so it's also showing us the kind of attitude to cultivate when we're going to, to our teachers. Okay, the next verse. As they give birth to all that, they are like my mother. They give me the milk of virtues, so they are like nurses. They cleanse me completely by means of enlightenment's branches. These spiritual friends completely exorcise harm. Okay? So again, you know, this is... Yeah? They're going to give birth to us as bodhisattvas, so they're like our mother, okay? They nurse us with virtue, so they're like nurses, you know? So it's teaching us how to, to think of our spiritual mentors and how to approach them. They are like doctors releasing from death and old age, showering a rain of nectar. They are like the Lord Indra. Like the full moon, they flourish with virtuous qualities. They show the direction of peace, just like bright sunlight. Yeah. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. 
Regarding friends and foes, they are like mountains. Yeah. So they're stable, they don't vacillate. They're not uh, fickle. And also like a mountain. I mean, a mountain, does a mountain have a friend and a foe? No, the mountain is the, the same is for everybody. So regarding friends and foes, they are like mountains. They have minds as undisturbed disturbed as the tranquil sea. They give perfect support, some say like boatmen. With this in mind, I've come here. So again, you know, this is how we've come here, seeing that they're, that they're like mountains regarding friends and foes. So they're not going to have favorite dis- disciples and leave other people out. Yeah, but they're going to be stable and treat everybody equally. They have tranquil minds and disturbed like the sea. So they're not going to, you know, kind of flare up at the, a moment's notice. They give, give, they give us support. And so it's with this kind of thing in mind that we come here. So again, you know, check our motivation. What are we wanting out of our teacher? Yeah. So we're not coming here to get special attention. Yeah. We're coming here to be led on the path. Bodhisattvas bring forth my understanding. Bodhisattvas cause enlightenment. These beings, these friends of mine, are praised by the Buddha. With such virtuous thoughts, I have come here. Okay. So to see them like that, our teachers. As they save the world, they are like heroes. They have become the captains, protectors, and refuge. They are the eye bestowing happiness on me. With thoughts like these, honor your spiritual friends. So spiritual friends means spiritual mentors. Okay. Okay, so those verses are, are nice to, to contemplate. They help us adjust our mind, you know, so that we relate to our teachers uh, in a good way. Okay, then the next outline is, um, the, you know, the, so that talks about those two points, how to relate to them in thought, and now how to relate to them in deed, in action. Okay. So, um, we should try and please our teachers. This does not mean being a people pleaser, okay? I used to really, I didn't like that expression, to please your spiritual mentor, because to me it sounded too much like pleasing God, and, you know, you didn't know quite the rules, what you were supposed to do, and if you didn't do it correctly, God was going to be unhappy, so I, I really didn't like this thing of like the expression pleasing your spiritual mentors. What it actually means, you know, it doesn't mean being a people pleaser. It means to align your your own to align our own minds in virtue is what it means. Yeah. 
Because when you think about it, what does our spiritual, what do our spiritual mentors want for us above all? They want us to be happy. What's the cause of happiness? Virtue. Yeah. So, you know, as much as we can ourselves create the cause of virtue, the causes, virtue, the causes of happiness, which is virtue, then the happier our spiritual mentors are going to be. Okay? Now, don't expect your spiritual mentors to go, Oh, I'm so proud of you. You do a daily meditation practice. You're fantastic. You know, like we, sometimes we're really like little children. We want all sorts of praise from our mentors. You know, Do you know that I'm meditating every day? Isn't that good? Will you notice me and praise me, please? <laughs> okay, if you have that kind of attitude, chances are your teacher's not going to notice what you're doing. <laughs> Okay, or if they notice, they're not going to comment. I mean, they will notice, but they're certainly not going to comment because that's going to feed into, you know, all sorts of rubbish on our part. Okay, so we, um, the way, you know, to, to, um, to act towards our, our teachers is, you know, to, uh, to, make offerings of three different things. So the first one is to offer material things and so on. Here it says, by offering your life, children, spouse, wealth, and retinue. Okay? So, offering your life. That one, definitely, yes, we should offer. You know? And what does offering a life mean? It means that we think Dharma is the most important thing in our life. Yeah, that's offering our life. It doesn't mean that we lie down in front of our spiritual teacher and say, I offer you my life, boss me around, you know. It's not like that, okay? It means we're dedicating our life to Dharma practice. Yeah, then when it says to offer your children and your spouse, you know, we always go, what? How can you offer your children and your spouse? They aren't possessions to be given away. Okay, well, that's true. But here, you know, they're talking about an ancient culture. Yeah, but the meaning of it is, who are the people we are most attached to? Spouses and children. Yeah. Generally, those are the people, you know, our partner and our kids. So what it said, when it means offering them, it means giving up the attachment. And if the people that you're most attached to aren't your partner and kids because you don't have any, then whoever it is that you're most attached to, to really give up, you know, to imagine giving these people to the Buddha. So then they don't belong to you, so you can't get attached to them anymore and be possessive of them. And when your mind says, but I don't want to give them up, then ask yourself, are they better on being under the guidance of the Buddha or better being in my possession? What's better for them? Okay, the people you love the most... Yeah, what's, what's going to be best for them? That 
you're possessive, grasping onto them, or that you offered them to the Buddha and they're under the guidance of the Buddha. Okay. So whenever you're very, uh, you have a lot of attachment for somebody, this is very good to do. Offer them to the Buddha. You know, put them in your mandala offering and offer them to the Buddha and think, now they belong to the Buddha. They don't belong to me. So there's nothing for me to get possessive of. I have no claims over them. I can't demand anything. And actually, they're much better if, you know, the Buddha takes care of them rather than if my you know, emotionally volatile mind takes care of them. Isn't it? Yeah, if we really care about people, offer them to the Buddha. Don't hang on to them. Okay? And then offer uh, our teachers our wealth and retinue. You know, so in the old days when, you know, if you were an important person, you had all your retinue and you could offer them. In other words, you know, they, you would put them at the service of your teacher. Okay. Again, it doesn't mean you offer all your wealth, but it means, you know, that you make material offerings and so on, especially if things that the teacher can use. <laughs> I remember when one person wanted to offer me a TV, and I said, no, I don't want a TV, you know. And they were quite insistent. And I said, you know, give the money to the Tibetan Nuns Project. No, I don't want to. I want to give you a TV. And I had to say, I'm sorry, I really can't accept it. So, you know, it's better, instead of being stubborn like that, if your teacher says, I don't want a TV, to say, what do you need? And maybe they say, well, I need some vitamins, or I need some soap, or I need, you know, whatever it is. Okay. Then, second thing to offer them is to offer service. Yeah. Here it uses, it says, by bathing, massaging, wiping, and nursing them. Okay? <laughs> so, you know, what it means is by physically attending to their needs, you know, if cooking for them or doing things like that. And it also means like setting up before teachings, uh, arranging travel schedules, um, you know, doing whatever virtuous projects your teachers are involved in, helping in those virtuous projects, you know. Because a teacher may have all sorts of ideas and, uh, you know, for projects that can benefit so many people. But as one person, they themselves can't do everything to make these happen. So we volunteer to help and go out and, you know, man these, the, these various projects that will bring benefit to sentient beings. Also uh, included in, in offering service, it says, by never going against their words, whatever they may be. So this means, you know, trying to really follow your teacher's instructions. Now, Sometimes people think they have very funny ideas of what following their teacher's instructions mean. Sometimes they think what the teacher says in general, Dharma class, is not an instruction. It's only when I go to them and they say, bring me tea, that's the instruction. 
No. The, gen- the instructions are the general Dharma teachings that are happening. They don't have to be given to us personally, you know, looking us in the eye in order to be instructions. Okay? So try to follow the Dharma instructions as well as we can. We're not going to do perfectly. Sometimes we get teachings that are more advanced than we're able to practice. That's okay. We may not be able to practice them well now, but we aspire to do that, and we keep those teachings in high regard, even though we're not able to practice them right now. Okay, we have that aspiration. So it doesn't mean you need to practice everything perfectly. Um, One other thing when it talks about not going against their word. One thing I've noticed is there's some people, you know, they'll ask their teacher uh, for some advice. The teacher will give some advice. The person doesn't like the advice. They want to do something else. So they go to another teacher and ask that teacher for advice. And maybe that teacher tells them what they want to hear, in which case they go back to the first teacher and say, well, so-and-so told me to do this. So how does that make the first teacher feel? You know, well, you asked me for advice. I gave you advice. You went to somebody else who told you something different, so you don't want to follow my advice. So why did you ask me for advice to start with? Yeah? If you have no intention of really taking it to heart, why are you asking? Okay. So then what they do is sometimes they go to the second teacher. The second teacher doesn't tell them what they want to hear. They may say the same thing as the first teacher, or they may say something different. But in any case, it wasn't what they wanted to hear. So then the student goes to another teacher and asks the same question. You know, And it usually isn't a Dharma question, like, please explain how emptiness and dependent arising are non-contradictory. It's usually not that kind of question. It's usually, shall I go here, shall I do that? Yeah. So you ask one, they don't tell you what ones you hear. You ask another, they also don't tell you what you want to hear. You ask a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and six, until you stumble upon the teacher who tells you what you want to hear. And then you say, oh, good, now now I have my teacher's advice and, and permission to do so. Yeah, I've seen this happen so many times, you know. And people usually wind up quite confused after a while, you know, and, and quite unstable in, the, in their own uh, practice. Okay. Now, the question comes up, what happens if you ask your teacher for advice and they tell you what you don't want to hear, like go to Italy, do not stop go, do not pass go, do not collect $200, yeah. So then you work with your mind, or you go back to your teacher and you say, you know, you explain, you know, please I don't understand the instructions, could you clarify them for me? Or I understand them, but it's something I don't feel I can do right now. You know, I had to do that once with one of my teachers. 
after being in Italy, before I got to go back to India, I, uh, I went to another Dharma center, you know, where my teacher was teaching. And, uh, you know, he knew I was going to be leaving Italy. And so he said, oh, will you stay here and be the spiritual program coordinator here at this other Dharma center in another country? And I was so totally burnt out, you know. And I, I just had to say, I, I really wish I could do what you say, but I, I have no energy in me to do that right now, you know. Please, is it okay if I go back to India? And he said yes. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, you have to go back and explain why you can't fulfill the advice. Or, you know, ask for, for them to explain the meaning. Yeah. But of course, you should think about the advice before you go bugging your teacher again about, you know, please explain to me what you mean. Okay. Because they may, again, tell you something you don't like, so please explain to me why you told me to do this, this thing, which obviously I don't want to do. <laughs> What's your teacher supposed to say? Yeah, what can they say? Nothing. Okay. Okay, then the third thing. Uh, so offering service. In other words, you know, offering our time, our energy, to support their virtuous projects. Thank you for proofreading the text. <laughs> okay, and then the third is, um, most importantly, by offering them your practice. Yeah, and so to practice according to their instructions. And in your mind, offer your practice, offer your virtue, offer your good karma. And that's the best uh, kind of offering to make because, again, that's the most important thing. And if we create that good karma, then our teachers are going to be, you know, really pleased. Okay? So it doesn't mean that you have to, um, you know, again, do this whole people-pleasing kind of thing. And it doesn't mean that the people who are closest to the teacher are the favorite ones. Okay. I used to feel quite left out because other people got to go and be in Rinpoche's room and do puja with him and I had to lead a course and you know they got to do this and I didn't get to do that and so on and so forth. And then one night Lama was, when he was teaching, he said, you know, sometimes the people who the teachers keep around them closest are the ones who are the biggest disasters. All of a sudden, I felt great relief. <laughs> and I understood why some of the people around my teacher were really difficult. <laughs> you know? And he said, because these people need that kind of close guidance. So the, the actual way to be close to our teacher is to, to practice well. Because what does being close to our teacher mean? It doesn't mean being their pet. Okay. 
you know, they already have cats and dogs and butterflies, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I remember one time watching Lama Yeshe with Song Rinpoche, and it was so clear, you know, that, I mean, that how Lama looked at, at Song Rinpoche as his teacher, and it was so clear how Lama was a close disciple, and what made them a close, you know, close student-teacher relationship was bodhicitta. Because for Sang Rinpoche, that was the most important thing. For Lama Yeshe, that was the most important thing. Yeah, so that quality of respecting and meditating, actualizing, acting according to bodhicitta is what made them very close. Okay. Then, the um, benefits of relying upon our spiritual mentors. Okay, so it's, uh, it's like um, benefiting all of the teachers. Okay, uh, and we will, we're creating the cause to have good teachers in the future and to be close to uh, those good teachers. Okay, we create by, you know, having a good relationship with our spiritual mentors, then we won't fall into lower rebirths because we will follow their teachings and avoid creating the causes of suffering. We will be unaffected by karma and afflictions. That doesn't mean totally unaffected, but, you know, depends on, on the level of our practice, but the more we practice, the less will be buffered around by karma and afflictions. Okay, um, we'll, we'll benefit because our good qualities will be enhanced, again, through listening and taking to heart the teachings. Um, we'll achieve our temporary and ultimate goals, temporary goals of good rebirth, ultimate goals, liberation and awakening, again, by attending teachings, putting them into practice. Okay, and uh, so thus these kind of goals, these kind of benefits that we receive from having a good relationship with our spiritual teachers surpass any benefits we would receive from making offerings to all of the Buddhas. Yeah. So they always talk about, you know, when you make offerings to the Buddhas, how much incredible merit you create. So here what it's saying is, you know, relying on our spiritual mentors properly, you create even greater merit with more dis more advantages. And the basic thing is through following the Dharma teachings. That's how it happens. Okay. And then the drawbacks of not relying on our spiritual mentors. Okay. So if you commit a breach of reliance upon a spiritual mentor through ignorance, at your death you will roast in unrelenting torment. In other words, you know, be conscientious about your behavior, yeah, and, and don't blow your top and yell and scream at your teacher and don't talk behind their back and criticize them and don't form factions among their disciples and don't say, oh, my teacher doesn't know what in the world they're talking about because that kind of uh, negative attitude is going to be very detrimental. OK? 
Okay? Another disadvantage is good qualities will not arise, and those you have will decline. So again, you know, if we develop a negative mind towards our teachers, you know, and I mean, the more negative our mind is, the more we actually stop practicing Dharma. Because we get this thing, well, they taught me to do this practice, but they don't know anything, so I'm not going to do this practice. So then we stop practicing. So who, who is harmed by our not practicing? Not the teacher, us. Okay. Um, we'll have bad companions and false teachers. Yeah. And so we really, at all costs, want to avoid bad companions and false teachers. So it's like in the 37 practices of awakening. You know, what is it? Um, when you... Rely on when you rely, come to an end. Yeah, when you rely on... Cherish spiritual mentors even more than your own life. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. So that's on one side. Then the previous verse... The other one about avoid bad friends. Yeah, give up bad friends. How does it start? Keep their company. Yeah, when you seek their company, three poisons increase your activities of agitating decline. They make you lose your love and compassion. Give up bad friends. Yeah. Okay, so that's this whole thing we've done here are summarized by those two verses. And then a summary here is, in brief, if you sincerely wish to practice the teachings for a long time, rely upon spiritual mentors who guide you infallibly. Understand the benefits and the drawbacks at the time and value your commitment to the gurus more than you do your own life. Now, does cherishing our teacher mean that we have to agree with all of their ideas about everything? No. Okay. We came there to learn the Dharma. Our teacher may have different political views. They may have all sorts of different views, you know, about what are, what's good diet, about social relationships, about manners, about, you know, economics, about who knows what. They may have all sorts of different views. Being a good student doesn't mean that we have to think exactly like our teacher on everything. Okay? We came there for the, to learn the Dharma, so we learned the Dharma and we put it into practice. Okay? Um, even in the Dharma, we don't always have to have the same view as our teacher. And they give us an example here, Lama Atisha. Yeah, his, um, one of his teachers that he cherished the most was Lama Serlingpa, you know, who he, in, from uh, Sumatra. And Lama Serlingpa was a Chidamadra. Atisha was a Madhyamaka. Majmika, okay? So Atisha had a higher philosophical view than his own teacher. Yeah. Does that mean he looked down on his teacher and disrespected him? Oh, you're just one of those Chitamajas who, you know, 
you really think all these things are just latencies? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, no, he didn't look, he had, you know, that's an important topic to have a different, you know, I mean, your teacher may, may think Tibetan tea is great and you think it's offered. That doesn't matter. Your teacher may think, you know, George Bush was a great president. You may not. That also doesn't matter. Yeah, your teacher can think women are inferior and you don't. That also doesn't matter. You know, different philosophical views is something that is more important. But even with that, Atisha did not have a negative view of his teacher because uh, Sir Lingpo was the one who really taught him the bodhisattva practices and, you know, the, the thought training. And he is eternally grateful to him for that reason. And so even, you know, the fact of having a different philosophical view, which is an important topic to have, where, you know, not... Uh, a regular topic, um, you know, so that even that didn't bother him at all, you know, he still had utmost respect for Lama Sarlengpa. Okay, so we have some time for questions, maybe answers, I don't know. I have some questions from online. Okay, yeah. So first, relating to the thought of going from one teacher to another with questions. Yeah. So what exactly is the question? Is the question, is it okay to ask the Sangha for advice? Or is the question, can I ask the Sangha for advice rather than asking my teacher for advice? Can, can you read the question again? They seem to be quite, I'm not understanding actually the connection between the two issues. Um, you know, if you, if you don't want advice from your teacher, don't ask for advice. <laughs> if you want to ask advice from the Sangha, go ahead. It's your choice. if you went and asked all three of them the same question, a personal question. Yeah, what, what to do, 
about what am I supposed to do or this or that. They're going to give you three different answers and then, you, you know, you're going to wind up in a quandary. So what you do is you ask one teacher, you know, and then you stick with that. Yeah, I think that's the wisest thing. If it's a Dharma question, like, you know, how do you, you know, find emptiness and, 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 and uh, dependent arising is not contradictory, that one, ask many teachers, because that you'll get a lot of different perspectives. It will really help your meditation. But if it's a personal question about what to do, if you start asking the whole world, even if you're not asking your teacher, you're asking Sangha members, you ask this Sangha member, that Sangha member, the third one, the fourth one, the fifth one, the sixth one, they're all going to have different ideas about what to do. So it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, instead of going from one teacher to the next until they somebody tells you what you want to hear, you go from one Sangha member to the next. Yeah, and then you just get confused. Different ways to do dishes. (laughs) (laughs) She said different ways to do dishes. So learn one way and do it well. Do them well. Yeah. Uh Yeah, it kind of comes to the same thing. We're offering our virtue and then dedicating that for their long life and the success of their virtuous projects and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'm on this, but is it necessary to have a good group or if you have different teachers and you value them equally? Mm-hmm. Do you necessarily have to have one of those? Okay, so is it necessary to have a root guru? Actually, they say to value all your teachers equally. Yeah. The idea of a root guru is usually somebody who, who, it's usually but not always, the person who first, you know, kind of really touched your heart with the Dharma. Okay. Um... Yeah, so you hold that person as your root guru. It, sometimes it can happen. Maybe, you know, it was at a teaching with His Holiness the Dalai Lama that you went, wow, you know, and it, something really hit you. You consider His Holiness your root guru. But you can't go and ask His Holiness advice about different things, you know. He has thousands of disciples. So then you cultivate relationships with other teachers. You can, you know, or you take, you know, when you take um, tantric initiation from His Holiness, he becomes one of your gurus. But again, you know, it's hard to have the personal relationship. So you cultivate, you know, more personal relationships with other teachers who have more time. Yeah. Um, I don't think you need to force yourself to have a root guru. It's usually, oh, there's somebody, you usually just feel like, well, there's somebody, I really value all my teachers and cherish all of them, but there's somebody who kind of really understands me in, a, in quite a deep way. Yeah. But I know for myself that I, uh, you know, sometimes consulted different teachers with different questions, you know, because they had 
you know, different areas where they were, you know, really, really quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember hearing in Dharamsala years ago, and this might just be chai shop gossip, mm-hmm. but the fact that not only would we hurt ourselves by not keeping tantric precepts, but it would also harm the teacher. Yeah. Um, right. So they do say that if we take tantric precepts and then don't cut, you know, don't keep them properly, that that harms the teacher. Okay? What, when you think about it, okay, your tantric teachers, we, we really practice seeing them as being the Buddha. Okay? So Buddhas appear when disciples are receptive. If we don't keep our tantric precepts, Clearly, we're not being very receptive to the teachings, are we? So then, why should the Buddha appear to teach us if we're not receptive? Yeah. So I think that's how it works. Yeah. It's not like, well, you broke your precepts, so I'm going to punish you by dying. No, it's not like that. Okay. Yeah. Is there a very big danger then in just going along to them and taking them? Because then by taking the impairment, are you committing yourself to some relationship with that teacher? Oh, yeah. 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 So nowadays, you know, lamas come through, they arrive on Friday, give an empowerment on Saturday, leave on Sunday. You know, it, I don't think that's the, the best way for Dharma to be spread, to tell you the truth. Um, because First of all, it's very good to check the qualities of, of somebody before deciding to take an initiation from them because when you take that initiation, then they become one of your teachers, you know. So you want to make sure that they're qualified and, and so on. Uh, so I think it's much better to go slowly and, you know, get to know them and not just run around taking lots of initiations. Also, because unless you you really want to do the practice, I don't quite understand the reason for taking so many initiations. Unless you are a lineage holder and you need to have all those practices so that you can pass them on to students who have the karma for one practice or another. So you need to have all those initiations to be able to help your students. But I think otherwise it's better to kind of go, go more slowly and um, about this, yeah? Yeah? Uh-huh. Um, I just did want to make just a personal comment, is that even if we have done some research on our spiritual teachers and they have the qualifications that, they, that are important and we have this relationship with them, Trying to turn our minds around, really having the faith and confidence is a real process. Because I find in the beginning there, because the button pushing is happening and the transparency is there, that the self-centered thought and the ego are so like resistant to what it's hearing is that there's got to be this space of kind of self-acceptance that's going to, it's going to be a relationship that's going to grow in faith and trust. Because I know that in the beginning, I was just like, you know, 
the resistance was so strong that if I thought that I had put myself into a karmic tailspin with that, I don't think I would have been able to continue. You know, to, but the fact that my teacher was willing to just hold me in that place and kind of, you know, take me where, where I was, then I was able to sort of grow in my confidence, work on my practice so that my self-centered thought had some reigning in, and then as the years went on, that trust grew, and then the feedback would come more directly. But to expect that in the beginning, because the relationship is so precious, is that the teacher from their side has this patience and understanding about where you are that makes room for this resistance in some way. I mean, yeah. It really was important for me, because I, could, I couldn't have lasted if that expectation was right there in the beginning. Okay. So if there was the expectation of your teacher telling me whatever they saw, and yeah. I would have to just bow with say, okay. "Here you go, okay. I can see that." Okay. So if there was the expectation that you were, you just had to, you know, they told you to move to Antarctica, and your job was to say, "Yes, I will go to Antarctica," that you probably would have run away because the the self-centered thought was so strong. Yeah. So. You had to, on one hand, give yourself some room to work through all your resistance, and your teacher also had to give you some room to work through that resistance. Yeah. Which is what happened, which is why I'm here. Why you're why still I'm around. Still here, yes. And I'm growing in yes. that relationship. Yeah. And that's why, you know, sometimes the way the, this meditation on relying on a spiritual mentor is taught, sometimes people get the idea that, okay, from the very beginning, I just have to acquiesce to everything I'm told, and, you know, make myself be that round peg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. And that that just—I mean—that just causes too much internal pressure. I mean, we have to be ourselves and work through everything, and take the time to build a good rep, a good relationship with the teacher, and not put it on our own head with some kind of unrealistic expectation or image of what it means to be the perfect disciple. Which is what the self-centered thought will do. Yes. The self-centered thought will say, you need to be like X, Y, and Z to be the perfect disciple. You are not doing that. You're going to hell. <laughs> and then it's like, ah, I don't want any spiritual teachers because I'm only going to go to hell because I don't listen to them. And that's not particularly helpful. Yeah. So to give ourselves some space to grow into the relationship and know that our teachers will give us some space. Anything else? Yeah. Someone commented last week, I mean, I could get the clarification, but they said, um, Buddha is our spiritual teacher and he found out the path himself with the purpose to teach human beings the way to get out of samsara. So, I mean, how does, maybe the question was how it related to um, cultivating faith in the spiritual Oh, so if the Buddha discovered the path himself, why do we need teachers? Maybe we can discover the path for ourselves. <laughs> okay. If you practiced 
you know, for so many previous lifetimes in such an immaculate way that you have all sorts of wonderful imprints on your mind stream. And you remember the teachings this life because you have imprints for thousands of lives beforehand. Then, maybe you can be like a wheel-turning Buddha. For the rest of us, you know, we need to follow somebody who knows more than we do. Yeah. Because if we think we can discover the path on our own, what it basically turns out to be is making up the path that pleases our ego. Yeah, we've practiced that one already. Okay, so, you know, you're checking for their faults before you, you become their disciple. So you get to a point where you see all, you know, this fault and that fault and that fault, fault number 5,348, fault number 10,145. You have your, their whole list of faults, and then you take this leap of faith to, <laughs> to take them as your guru. If you find that many faults in them, maybe look for another teacher. Yeah? If, if you, if like I said, everybody who has the name teacher is not necessarily a teacher and does not necessarily have to be your teacher. So if you just see so many faults in somebody, don't take that person as your teacher. You have to have a feeling towards somebody like, well, you know, wow, this, this person can lead me. But if your mind is already criticizing them again and again from the get-go, then, you know, that's not going to work. No matter how high they are. No matter how high they are. Yeah. Because there, there's also a factor of karma involved in choosing our spiritual mentors. And we have karma with different people. Yeah, and we may not have karma with some high master. Yeah, and so we have to, you know, it's the teacher that we have a karmic relationship with, that we have trust in, that's really going to be able to guide us. Not the teacher who has a thousand and three titles, who we look at and just see faults. With the previous comment, Yes, definitely, definitely. You know, I would say about the finding faults in teachers that um, if one has the habit pattern of criticizing, that will definitely arise up with a teacher. Yes. And I can remember the time when I had to make the decision or I, I just knew if I keep on this 
pattern that I do, it will ruin it. So I either have to stop or leave, mm. one or the other, you know. So I think to see the what what patterns that we come with mm -hmm. is really helpful. Yeah. Because it'll arise. Okay, so you're saying to, to see what our patterns are, and you saw that you had a whole pattern of criticizing and fault-picking, and it came to you at one point that either you have to stop that pattern or you have to leave because you can't stay and just continue to pick faults. It wasn't going to work. Yeah, it would totally be there. Yeah. Okay. Shall we dedicate? May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all inspiration I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lofsam's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three Especially at Trovasti Abbey.